Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect, for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the Bread of Life. Let us seek Him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. Our Lord Jesus prayed for us that God would use His Word to bring us into holiness. The psalmist in 119.11 said that He hid the Word of God in His heart so that He would not sin against God. These are connected. A holy life is one that is walking out from sin and walking in the sunlight of God's holy fire. The Word is very practical in helping us deal with sin, and that's what we'll consider today. I could give you a number of references. You could go through and I could give you a a number of places in the New Testament where categories of sins are put before us. And obviously we remember the Ten Commandments in which we're told what not to do and what to do and it reveals what sin is. Let me read to you a couple. In Romans chapter 1 verses 29 through 30, I won't mention all of them, but here are just some of the names of specific sins. Sexual immorality, covetousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossiping. Doesn't that kind of bother you that gossiping and murder are put together in the same category? It's there. Backbiting. That means saying nasty things about people behind their backs. Violent, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents. Kids, it's there too. Disobedient to parents. Right there with murders and all the other things. Sins that are listed. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Let me read those to you. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, there's a lot more. But the Bible gives you these lists of sins. That's another way in which it deals and helps us deal and address sin. It names it. It identifies specific sins. Here's the third way. It directs us away from sin by showing us how we live a life of beauty and righteousness. It directs us away from sin by showing us what it looks like to have a life of beauty and righteousness. You read your Bible, and you'll come upon these characters, at least at moments in their life, in which they express the beauty of doing the right thing. And how it honors God. You know, you read through the book of Genesis and you you find these various characters and not all of them are very compelling. In fact, most of them are not compelling. And then you come to the story of Joseph. And you read about this man, Joseph, and the difficulties he went through his life and yet in the middle of it, how he sought to be true to God. And you think to yourself, I like Joseph. I identify with Jacob, but I like Joseph. Jacob was the conniver and the deceiver and the heel clutcher, but... Joseph, I like. Well, the Bible shows us the beauty of a good life, of a moral life. But ultimately, the way God does that is He he introduces us to the beauty of the holy life and the sinless life that Jesus lived. And that's where history has been fixated ever since. The person of Jesus and His life, because He was perfect and He was pure and He was sinless and He was good in every way and His life was such that He... He drew to himself those people who at least for a moment wanted to be in the presence of the sunshine of his life. We think, Lord, I, I want to, I, I see the difference. I see the contrast between him and, 
and all the people around him. And by the way, the reason that the Pharisees wanted to put Jesus to death was because he eclipsed them. They had come along and said, we're the righteous people and we're the good people and we're the moral people and we're better than most people. And the Lord Jesus came along and he was so pure and he was so righteous and he eclipsed them and they hated it and they resented it. But we see, we see in the story the contrast between those supposed righteous men and Jesus Christ. Jesus saw it too. What did he say of those righteous men? They're whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like that good and righteous and sinless man. And it, it triggers something in us because his life reflects something that we wanted to be since we were little boys and little girls. We wanted to be good. I did at least. I don't know of a little boy who doesn't deep down inside want to be good. Jesus was all of that. The third thing the Bible does is it shows us the consequence of sin over against this beautiful portrait of the sinless one it shows us the consequence of sin we see the consequences of those who've ruined their lives and sullied their lives and defiled their lives and fell under judgment and sin and shame and who dishonored God and you know when you read the Old Testament and you begin reading it the most frustrating thing in it is to see that there were these people that God singled out and he wanted to bless the Jews and that over and over and over and over again, they turn away from God. You read it in the book of Judges. You'll see the cycle. They turn away from God. They come under judgment. They cry out to God. God rescues them. They turn away from God. They come under judgment. God rescues them. My father told his brother when his brother came to him once and said, I don't know if I want to be a Christian or not. Well, actually, I don't want to be a follower of Jesus, but I want to live like a Christian. How do I learn how to live like a Christian? And my father told him, well, you just... Begin reading in Genesis, and when you get to the end of Revelation, I think you'll know how to live like a Christian. So my uncle began this journey through the Bible, reading through it that way. And by the time I came to visit him about six months later, he was talking like a Christian. I remember saying, Uncle Neil, you're talking like a Christian. What happened to you? I mean, I thought you just, you'd want to be a Christian. You just kind of want to live like one. And he said, well, I don't know. I, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm saved. Well, what happened? When did that happen? Because I don't know. It was somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. Well, how did that happen? He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I start, first I started reading and thinking, this is a silly book. And then I started thinking, well, no, there, there's truth in this book. And I read a little further and I thought, no, this book, is, this book is true. This is the truth. So, well, when did that begin to dawn upon you? He says, well, I'll tell you. What I found myself doing was I, I found myself seeing how good God was to the nation of Israel and all the terrible things the Jews were doing. And I started kind of feeling bad for God and getting mad at the Jews. God was blessing them and rescuing them and doing all these things and they kept resisting him and God was giving them direction to try to help them and they would refuse his direction and I was getting mad at those Jews. I was feeling sympathetic towards God and then all of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm just like the Jews. My whole life, God has been good to me and God has pursued me and God's wooed me with his goodness. And God's shown me the right way, and I've known it, but I've resisted it. And I've refused it over and over and over again. I'm just like them. And he began to look at his life through the life of the Jews and say, the consequences that are falling upon him have fallen upon my own life. God reveals us our sin because he shows us the consequence of our sins, and he does it in order to bring us away from those sins. Ultimately, he shows us the full consequence of the impact the ugly impact of our sin when we see 
that beautiful life of the Lord Jesus nailed to a cross. And suffering and bleeding on that cross. Torn and battered and bloodied and sacrificed. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is a portrait of the consequence of my sin. And I see it. And I face it. What a journey. All the way through the Old Testament, the way in which God reached out to people and people turned from them and reaped the whirlwind of their own rebellion and yet God kept pursuing them over and over again and over and over again and then finally God in love sent His own Son before them, living a pure and holy life, inviting Him to Himself and they crucified Him. It's the story of our sin and where we will go without God unless we yield and we repent and we believe and we trust in Him. That's what the Bible does. One of the ways that the Bible keeps us from sin is we see where it takes us. And we say, oh God, I don't want to go there. And it shows us where we can go without sin. We see Jesus and we say, oh, I want to follow Him and I want to be like Him. What God does is He gathers all this together in the Bible. It's the fifth thing. He gathers all this together in the Bible and then by His Spirit, working within us, He works to convict us of sin. The Bible says that the Word of God is inspired of God to reprove us of sin. And the word there, reproof, is convict. It convicts us of sin. It's like it shines a light into our life. The Spirit of God comes into our life and He lives within us. And He, he takes the Word, which is like a sharp sword, which the Bible said the, the Bible is the Word of God, the sword of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And the Spirit wields that sword of the Word in our life and begins to work in our lives, using the Word of God, speaking to us, raising up His voice to warn us from the paths of sin, showing us and calling us into the right way, using that Word to speak truths into our lives, convicting us and leading us. Actually, this Word, by the way, is helpful for anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you think it's just a great work of literature, a great book of moral instruction, it still will help you. It still will provide the service of guiding you and teaching you and instructing you, but for the believer, the person who has given his life to Jesus Christ and surrendered to him, this word is more than that. It becomes a living word because the author who wrote it lives inside of us. And he begins to speak it to us. And he begins to speak to us and get into our ear and instruct us and guide us. Most of us men should be very thankful for our wives because... Um, there were blind spots in our lives before we got married. There were parts of our character we couldn't see. Our families had customs and ways we did things, and nobody in that family, for whatever reason, thought the particular forms of behavior were inappropriate. And maybe our mothers tried to teach us. My mother did, I know, but we didn't always listen. But then we got married, and our wives began to sit next to us, and they began to correct us and instruct us and lead us to be true and honest and turn us in a proper direction. This person who's alongside of you, who speaks to you, and they have that name they have for you. Hopefully it's a gentle name. For me it's Jolie, right? And it just comes at Jolie, and there's the check. My wife is right there, coming alongside of me and guiding me and warning me, and God has used her to speak into my life. And men, I think your wives have done the same thing for you, many of you correct you and guide you in the right way. We actually have something better than that. Wives, you don't have to work quite so hard. You can take a break every once in a while. I just want you to know that. You know? <laughs> if you've got a believing man, he's got the Spirit of God living within him. 
fact, all you have to say is, well, what is the Spirit telling you? What is God calling you to do? Because God is speaking within us. He takes this word and he enlivens and he brings it to us. This is just the beginning point, by the way. You still got to take it and hide it in your heart, and we'll have to talk about what that means. You have to hide it in your heart. But that's going to take work. In Proverbs, the writer of the Proverbs tells his son that he's to strive for knowledge and truth like hidden treasures. He's to work for it and labor for it. And you can't find treasure and you can't hide treasure without digging. You can't. So you have to dig. You have to be regularly, regularly, regularly in this word. You don't want to do it. It's not going to avail you very much, although you might start there, but if you don't have the Spirit of God living and abiding in you first. So you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you ask Him to come and live inside of you and transform you and change you. And then, once He does, you, you let Him begin speaking to you and communicating His life to you. And you begin to dig, and you begin to hide away what you're learning, store it away deep inside of you as a, as a wonderful treasure. We'll talk about that some more. It's going to take work on your part. And God will use it to keep you from sin and to lead you into a life of holiness. Well, we'll have to actually break down that text more next time we get together. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. What is our response before these things, Lord Jesus? Oh, how I pray that the first response and instinct is, God, I want to, I want to be holy. Thanks for listening to The Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministries locally and internationally, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There you'll find links to radio broadcast archives and to full-length messages. Until the next time, may God bless you.